The word muckraker is an old word. It was originally began as a pejorative phrase used by Teddy Roosevelt to put down Lincoln Steppens and Ida Tarbell. We know today it's a, a word of journalistic uh, glory, really. Muckrakers have saved us, I imagine, from all sorts of disasters. And I think one of the most powerful and eloquent influential is Jack Anderson. You probably know that Jack Anderson has carried in more papers than any other political commentator in the history of journalism. And he's written, what I think is a very endearing and revealing memoir. It might be called a double memoir. It's called Confessions of a Muckraker. But it's not only about himself, but about his teacher, Drew Pearson. The subtitle is The Inside Story of Life in Washington During the Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson Years. And Random House of the Publishers and Jack Anderson, my guest this morning. And so, reflections on a muckraker's confessions in a moment after this message. We begin. And one of the first things, you yourself, how you broke in, is, is quite a story. You're a Mormon fundamentalist, and you're somewhere in China at the time. This is in the 50s? No, this is mm -hmm. the 40s, wasn't it? Yes, World War II. Uh -huh. I was, I guess, the youngest war correspondent of World War II. And uh, I was always looking for the big story instead of the one that I was supposed to be looking for. I was supposed to be looking for local boys who were heroes, local boys who I could glorify for their hometown papers. I wrote for about four or five papers. But I wasn't ever satisfied with that, so I went off looking for the big story, and I think I may have found it, uh, although nobody, just opened, nobody knew it. I got off behind the lines. I got down with the Chinese guerrillas, and I was there when the war ended. And I was with a band of Chinese nationalist guerrillas, and the moment the war ended, we were operating along the Hankow Peking Railroad and the moment the war ended, the day the war ended, they began fighting the communist guerrillas for control of the railroad. And I came back with this great story about the uh, civil war that had, was already raging in China. Nobody paid any attention. Nobody was interested in war. They were talking about peace. They, uh, they just treated it as just uh, an insignificant and obscure skirmish. This is toward the end of World War II. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, on the day that it ended. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the day that it ended. We were fighting the communist guerrillas. Mm -hmm. I was with some nationalist guerrillas. Mm -hmm. Then you met Joe and Lai, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was, the, uh, being the youngest of the reporters there in Chongqing, uh, I was the most expendable. <laughs> and nobody wanted to cover the Chinese communists because anyone who did might lose his contacts in the nationalist government. And so they gave me the job. And I went down a slime-covered alley to a beat-up, battered house with uh, with wrapping paper, greased brown wrapping paper for windows, kept the odors in, and uh, that's where Joe and Lai hold up in those yeah. days, and I used to see him almost daily. Yeah. So this is your beginning, now you're, but there's something else in your mind. You're this young guy from Utah, uh, a sort of sheltered life, and then you thought of, you heard of Drew Pearson. Right. Yes, I had, actually, uh, I think that it began one of those bull sessions that uh, we used to hold when there was nothing else to do in Chongqing. Just a group of correspondents dreaming about the future, wondering what they were going to do when the war was over, each one taking his turn, telling what he was going to do. My turn came. I said, well, I think I'll go to Washington. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about Washington. <laughs> But it seemed to me that Washington was the news capital of the free world, and Washington was the place to be. That's where the action was. And um, 
that, that's where I was going to go. Someone said, why don't you try to get on with, with Drew Pearson? He knows the town. Uh, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know too much about him. You know, I listened carefully, raised my eyebrows. Mm-hmm. I thought, way. I do want to learn. I want to learn the back rooms, the back alleys of Washington, so that I understand it as well as anyone. And uh, some of the other correspondents said, Drew Pearson's the one with that knowledge, so I looked him up. Yeah. And so you come there, and now here, here's your beginning of the education of Jack Anderson. And something he said to you about the nose is important. He worked hunches a lot, didn't he? Oh, he had a nose for news, a nose for scandal, a nose for character. Uh, I couldn't do what he did. I, I, have to, I have to get the facts before I can tell what a, whether there's a scandal there or not. He, he would know before the facts were in. <laughs> I was out gathering the facts to support his conclusions that he had already reached. Uh, he would sniff the air delicately, and he'd know that there was a scandal, or he would, uh, with a few whiffs, determine uh, that uh, a public official was bad, that a public official was corrupt, that a public official was a, was a demagogue, a man on a white horse. These were his enemies. And he knew it before anybody else. He knew it certainly before I did. And I would argue with him. I'd say, Drew, there's no facts to back this yeah. up. And he'd say, go out and get the facts. <laughs> and you know, yeah. he would be right. I, yeah. you know, he was invariably, uncanny. is that it? Invariably there was a guy, right. one, your trial, your, one of your early ordeals, trial by fire with him, came with a Congressman Bob Jones who was going to be nominated for the Federal Communications Commission. That's one of the, when you were still a kid. You were still yeah, younger. That's right. Now, he put his neck out right down to that, didn't he? He had a hunch about Bob Jones. He did, and he wrote about it, and he wrote about it without the proper uh, investigation. He knew Bob Jones was bad. He knew that there was something, that there was a flaw in his character. And so, once he knew that, he would sit down without anything but an instinct to go on and start writing and start calling people and someone would tell him and in this case someone told him that Bob Jones had been affiliated with the Ohio branch of the Ku Klux Klan it was called the Black Legion and Drew believed it because he just knew that it had to be true and he published it and I was aghast I said I said, Drew, where are your facts? And he says, uh, well, you'll have to go get them. And he had already printed it. And uh, it's unbelievable. Now, he, he made mistakes because of that yeah, once or twice. Yeah. But by golly, he was usually right. But I went to Ohio. Yeah, right. I went out to Ohio. And go. I will be doggone if it wasn't true. Now, you got, why don't you cite, do this chapter in verse eight. Now, he must have had a hunch. It's more than just known. No, someone told him. But, also, but he believed it without yeah, the facts. Yeah, he, but be- isn't also, he believed what someone told him. Isn't there something about Congressman Jones, though? Something he says or attitudes towards certain people also must have given that nose of Pearson, that extra instinct twitch. Yeah, he, he, he had an instinct. He... he he was a good judge of people. He saw in Jones's attitudes, you're yeah. quite right, he saw in Jones's attitudes a man who had some deep and, and dangerous prejudices, and he wanted to get to the root of it. And then someone told him, someone mentioned to him, someone whispered to him that Jones had once belonged to the yeah. Ohio branch of the Ku Klux Klan. Drew immediately believed it. It confirmed everything that he <laughs> suspected. 
And so he writes the story. But here are you. Now you're 20-something. And he says, you're going out there. You're going, you're going to this Ohio town. Yeah. Cold. Yeah, leave now, Ohio. Now, now we come to Jack Anderson at work. How are you going to find out that people are close-lipped? You want to know about Jones? You've got a couple of leads, a guy, a labor guy, another guy. You go to a saloon. Mm-hmm. You go to a bar there. Well, I went to the man I knew. The first yeah. place you go is to the man that you know. Yeah. And I knew a labor leader who was opposed to Jones, and I and uh, I think had actually worked against Jones. So you find somebody who's done an investigation already. This labor leader had done a cursory investigation of Jones. I found out what he knew. I found out who some of the people were uh, who uh, knew Jones, and I went to them myself. I just drove all around Ohio, talked to a police chief, <laughs> talked to other people. And uh, Drew's information was correct. They His agreed. hunch was right. But the man had joined the Black Legion. I wound up interviewing three or four people who had been uh, present when he was inducted. Yeah, but they they agreed to come to you to Washington to testify against the confirmation of Jones. Uh, now, if something happens here, you're under the gun now. You're going to yes. bring those three guys in. Well, it was difficult to do. These were people that were... They were rather tawdry bunch yeah. themselves. I mean, well, then I, I got them to come in. I got them to agree to testify. And, uh, well, the Senate, uh, the Senate committee headed by Owen Brewster was loaded against us. Yeah. And I, they had invited me to testify. Well, I was 24 years old, fresh from Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. awed by the marble in the U.S. Senate. The great mahogany desks, the the low-hanging chandeliers, and I thought, here I am facing the government of the United States, and I intended to go uh, make my appearance before that committee in, in uh, the greatest respect. And ten minutes, I think it was, before my testimony, Drew took me aside and said, go in and give them hell. I said, what? He says... He says they're loaded <laughs> against us. They're unfair. He says they're prejudiced. Go say so. Well, I thought to myself, I guess I'll go to jail for contempt, but I, I'll count on Drew to bail me out. So I went in and yeah. kind of like Daniel into the lion's den, and I took on the United States Senate because Drew said to do it. I'm yeah. 24. I uh, uh, I challenged those senators. I. I lit into him. I says, anybody listening to this, anyone listening to the, these hearings must certainly understand that that this committee is not fair. You you come, people expect of the United States Senate some kind of fairness, some some kind of judicial conduct, and you you people have been tearing into my witnesses. You've been tearing into them, and you've been treating. Uh, Bob Jones's witnesses with kid gloves. There isn't anyone here who hasn't noticed how totally biased that you are. And I'm shocked. And I went on like that. Yeah. And I just, uh, they say, they pointed out they had found certain flaws in these witnesses. And I said, of course, that's the whole point. I said, what did you expect to find in the Black Legion? I said, it takes a thief to catch a thief. You didn't expect to find Supreme Court justices who had been in the Black Legion, did you? 
you didn't uh, expect to find ministers of the gospel yeah. in the Bible. On that Legion, point, though, you? one of the guys uh, <laughs> did bring up the point of Hugo Black, who once was uh, a Klansman, became quite a man. But you answered that Hugo Black did change. Yeah. This guy hasn't. Yeah, that is, that, that, that is my yeah. point. And that was my point. And I simply pointed out to them that they had uh, maligned these witnesses. Uh, in fact, the chief police wasn't that bad. And the only way they could malign him, as I remember, uh, was by claiming that he was arresting too many people on the 4th of July and implying that these arrests helped to bolster the town treasury. And so I just said, I just lit in, I think it was Owen Brewster who made that point, and I just lit into him. I said, do you know how many people are killed on the 4th of July, Senator? I mean, are you advocating that uh, uh, mayhem and massacre on our highways? I said, I think you ought to reconsider the statement you just made. You know, <laughs> this was your baptism, really, in yeah. a way. And I was amazed uh, because, uh, studs, they backed down. Yeah. Isn't that something like you just said? Isn't that one thing Pearson was teaching you, telling you, about the nature of congressmen and senators? Yes, they're cowards. Yeah, basically. He taught me that they were cowards. Uh, they are... I guess they remind me a little bit about the Wizard of Oz, you know, kind of a frightened little man behind a big uh, 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 front. Yeah. You have a sequence about that. Oh, yeah, here is. They look, here's Drew saying to you, they look invincible up on their roster, but with all their powers, they're still just worried politicians in a free country. When the public is really watching them, they don't dare turn down a challenge to be fair. And so this is the credo, and pretty much your credo of, of That's Pearson. That's Drew taught me. Drew, Drew... Oh, Drew taught me courage. I'll never be as courageous as he was, but he taught me courage. And uh, he taught me a sense of outrage. I don't think I'll ever have the nose for outrage and scandal that he had, but at least he taught me that. But it's that sense of outrage. So he picked up quite a few enemies along the line. Oh, you yeah. can't tell. Well, Bob Jones was confirmed for the oh, FCC. Yes. So now Pearson is on the radio. And now they're out to get him, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're lying in wait, just as they are for me today. Uh, look, the struggle for power is intense. People will do for power what they'll never do for money. And uh, if you're a Drew Pearson, or today a Jack Anderson, and you step into the middle of that power struggle, uh, you can expect to be a recipient you of investigations of pressure. Of you think guys are laying for you as they did for Pearson? Oh, yes, oh, yes. During the Nixon years, I had just about every law enforcement agency in Washington on my trail. Richard Nixon had them after me. The Central Intelligence Agency at one time had 18 radio cars following me and my reporters around. They were taking pictures of everybody going in and out of my offices. Uh, they had electronics crew eavesdropping on our conversations. Uh, we know that because uh, a Senate committee dug out the facts, and uh, it's a matter of sworn testimony. Because you were an investigative journalist. That was your crime. Yeah. You that, were seeking all. to inform the public. In fact, uh, in fact, the only crime that was committed was by the CIA because, interestingly enough, the CIA is forbidden by law, by statute, oh. from conducting investigations within the boundaries of the United States. Well, didn't you go to the FBI office? I forget what the situation was. They hey, why are you guys tapping my phones? Why you guys got a file on me? <laughs> what was that discussion? I'm trying to call that now. Yeah, that was when I was a very young reporter. And um, 
I had um, I had learned from one of my sources that the FBI had a file on me, and I was outraged. Uh, it hadn't occurred to me that the FBI would keep a file on a citizen who was not under investigation for some kind of serious crime or who had not applied for a federal job. So I knew the number three man at the, CIA, at the FBI, and I just walked in on him, and I said, why are you keeping a file on me? Oh, he said, I'm, you're, <laughs> you, you, you're wrong. He says, we're not keeping a file on you. Whatever gave you that idea? And I says, it's file number such and such, and uh, it's been signed by so-and-so, and it contains these excerpts. And I started reading to him from my file. Oh, he says, oh, this is over my head, this is over my head. He yeah. says, uh, he says uh, I can't discuss it. Well, later that day, J. Edgar Hoover called up Drew Pearson and said, well, your young man, that young reporter, seems to be concerned because we have a file on him. Yes, we have a file on him, but I want to, you reassure him, tell him that, you see, we were ordered by the White House to do it, and we can't re refuse to follow a White House order. We have to do what the White House tells us. <laughs> so that was the first time I discovered that the FBI... Why, you think he was ordered by the White House? It was on his own. Oh, he, uh, he did those things on his own. Okay. But then he always covered himself. He probably had something in his files uh, indicating a White House interest. He probably had his liaison at the White House get some kind of a letter, some kind of a memo. You know, That's the Jack way Anderson, this raises, I think, a very key point about power of a secret policeman. Now, this is implied throughout the book here, too. Mm -hmm. Hoover really had... People were scared of him yes, over he the did. years. He had files of just about everybody. Yes, he Congressman did. as well. He did. Now, that could be used for many purposes, couldn't it? Yes. That's why I began an investigation of him. I was, Of course, this happened right after Drew died. And I was flying, uh, I remember it well, I was on a trip out of Pennsylvania flying with Hale Boggs, the former Democratic leader of the House. Now, Hale Boggs and I were just sitting next to one another on an airplane. We got talking about J. Edgar Hoover. And now I had always known this, but I hadn't thought too much about it. And during the course of the conversation... Hale Boggs says, well, no one dares to criticize Hoover because if they do, they'll be destroyed. And that hit me, you know. I was shocked. Somehow I'd known it, but I'd never thought about it. I'd never dwelled on it. And so when I got back to Washington, I went around and talked to a few congressmen, a few newsmen. And I said, uh, would you get up on the House floor and attack J. Edgar Hoover? Or to the newsmen, would you write a critical article about J. Edgar Hoover? No, no, they said. Well, why not? Why, he's 98% like ivory soap, you know, 99 and 99, 100% accepted by the American people. He's the closest thing to a deity we have uh, on Earth. And uh, he also, he keeps files on everybody. He'd destroy you. So I called my staff together, and I said, you know, I told him what I'd been doing, and I told him what my findings were. I said, I, I'm told that if we criticize J. Edgar Hoover, we'll be destroyed. I think we'd better find out whether that's true. I think we need to know whether that's true, and because we can't have the head of uh, our national police be a man who's held in fear. So I said we're going to conduct an FBI-style investigation of J. Edgar Hoover, mm -hmm. and we're going to do everything that the to J. Edgar Hoover that the FBI does to its uh, subjects, uh, short of violating the law. We won't tap wires. 
I want you, and then I began giving assignments. I want you to tail J. Edgar Hoover. Follow him. I want you to park while he's in his house. I want you to park there and read a newspaper until he comes out, just like FBI agents uh-huh. do. And then, then follow him wherever he goes. And then I want you, I said to another reporter, to go around and interview all his neighbors and find out what kind of a neighbor he is. And then I want you, I said, pointing to still another reporter, to go empty his garbage and bring it in and let's go through it and see if we can put together a personality profile the way the FBI does to its FBI and the FBI. Yeah. And that's what we did. And you know what we discovered? Well, in the garbage we found crumpled uh, menus that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had written to his housekeeper in a shaky old man's hand. We found some empty jelly cell cartons, and so we concluded that he was suffering from gas pains. <laughs> and when we wrote that story, he was furious. <laughs> because, you know, that, that, that took a lot of the deity out of him. Gods don't have gas pains, you know. <laughs> it took a lot of the deity out of him. But we made another interesting discovery. The... Um, the reporter who was following him reported back that J. Edgar Hoover had five bulletproof limousines. We checked that out. Uh, three of them in Washington, one in California, one in Florida, because those were the places he traveled. And they found that when he got into this bulletproof limousine, that he would crouch in one corner and prop up his hat in another corner. So here is this bulldog, this ferocious, uh, chief of our FBI crouching in a corner of a bulletproof limousine with his hat propped up in another corner. I wasn't scared of J. Edgar Hoover after that. I thought, there's a frightened man. Now, I don't, I don't mean to deprecate his memory. I think that he was a great man, but uh, as he had gotten older, he'd gotten cantankerous and, and obsessed, and uh, he was no longer the great... Uh, was, he ever, chief well, was he ever a great man? I uh, wonder about that. Well, he did a great uh, job at building up the FBI. Building up the FBI. But, yeah. well, you know, what's interesting to me is you said he's a frightened man, and that's one of the things Pearson taught you and you've carried forth on, that these are not deities there just because they sit behind that desk, that they're supposed to serve the public, and that's what you want them to do, and Pearson did. Therefore, you pick up quite a number of enemies. Yeah. What I find endearing about this uh, memoir, Confessions of a Muckraker, by my guest Jack Anderson and his colleague James Boyd, who helped expose uh, con- uh, Senator Dodd sometimes. Yeah, we've worked together uh, on two or three things. I mean, is you, you, the relationship of you and Pearson, two different backgrounds, holy, Pearson the committed... Uh, liberal, I guess you'd say, Quaker, with a certain view. You believing, you know, very much the young kid from Utah, and certain of your, your heroes, Pearson is clobbering, and you're wondering. You, you speak of, you know, the right, the so-called right, which you didn't like, and among them is MacArthur, Patton. Yes. Or, they, he, they, they were military heroes to me. I had been, I had attended the all those World War II movies where... MacArthur and Patton and our generals were the heroes. They were they were the good guys. John Wayne played them, you know. And uh, suddenly Drew Pearson was pointing out that they had feet of clay. And it was hard for me to accept. But he was right. They did have feet of clay. But he was connecting them, you see, in a way. You know, it was not in the papers, because they're all white heroes. And he's connecting them with the way a number of people thought here, 
who felt, by God, you know, the distemper of democracy, a phrase we hear mm. used a lot, not too much of this. Maybe we need some sort of authoritarianism. Oh, he was afraid of that. He, okay. he, he saw in Douglas MacArthur a man on a white horse who might try to ride down Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, he had reason to be afraid. He had a reason to be worried, a reason to be apprehensive. You know, this leads to something very fascinating and there's a great deal of drama to it and also a question of self-doubts. And that's the case of James Forrestal, who, mm-hmm. again, was seemingly untouchable, was s- Secretary of Defense. He became for a while. Oh, he was Mr. Establishment. Yeah. So l- let's just pause for a moment. My guest is Jack Anderson, and it's a memoir. I say a double memoir. It's of Drew Pearson, his uh, predecessor and teacher, and of himself, Confessions of a Muckraker. That's the word Teddy Roosevelt coined, you know, to put down Stephens and Tarbell and Ray Standard Baker. Ah, but the government oh. is clogged with muck. Somebody uh, yeah. needs to rake it out. Rake it in. Out and into the sunlight. And Random House, the published them, will resume in a moment after this message. So resuming the conversation with Jack Anderson, there's a comment here that Pearson used. It was new to you at the time, about the role of a reporter, and we'll come to Forrestal in a moment. Uh, Page 95 here. A reporter sometimes causes a conviction when he does it's only a byproduct. It's not our function for an official who's bad to deserve prison, but to advise people with his fit for the highest responsibility, an entire can of those who betray people for favors and big money. And then he goes on about how he has to do it, the technique and the ways, and sometimes has to be ways or varied number. And the question of ethics comes into being here, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't agree with some of the ways he operated. We, we disagreed. You see, I have always been taught that a newspaper man is a newspaper man, that his job is to report the story, not to become part of it. Uh, Drew Pearson, oh, he was a—he was not just a newsman. He was a crusader. He was a lobbyist. Uh, he was an activist. Uh, he was an adversary. Uh, he was an advisor, an advisor to presidents and senators. He played an active part in bringing about the kind of government that he thought, uh, the kind of causes that he believed in, uh, which was generally the liberal humanitarian causes. So he'd be almost be called, the phrase he was saying, an advocate journalist in a way. Oh, he was every bit an advocate journalist. I tried to be an objective one. Uh, he won me over more than I won him over, but I think that there was a little give and take on both sides. And most certainly, he was, to- he was tolerant of me. For example, uh, he would never call uh, the person that he was investigating, the person that he was writing about. He would never call to get his side of the story. Now, he had many reasons for that, which he would explain to me in great detail. He said, all you do is you tip them off. You let them know what you're writing about. And because we write the column a week in advance, that gives them one week to prepare their defenses. And so by the time the column comes out, they're all ready with with, uh, uh, a public relations campaign to counteract what we're trying to do. He says, I want to catch them by surprise. He says, let's, let's keep one step ahead of them. Let them prepare their campaign after we're already out. I said, but what if we're wrong? You know, we got to call the guy and get his side of it. Maybe he's right and we're wrong. We, ha- we have to listen to it. And so we would argue. Well, Drew, would, when he was writing the story, it would go out without calling the man. But when I wrote the story, I'd call him. And uh, I'd do it my way, he'd do it his. 
and Drew never did stop me from doing it my way. You were saying there's no one technique, there's no one way. This was his way. That was his way. He accepted your way. And I thought, uh, I guess if you, if you have the keen insight that he had, you could do it his way. But I don't have that kind of insight. I'm not sure that, that a man is guilty of, of wrongdoing. And because I'm not sure, even though I may have facts that suggest it, I've got to talk to him, and I've got to yeah. hear what he's got to say. Jack, i got to ask you a question. That's a big one. You said objective journalist. Is there such a thing as an objective journalist ever? Oh, I don't worship yeah. uh, objectivity. That's another thing Drew yeah. Pearson taught me. And Oh, how to explain it. Oh, let me cite. This is an old story, and I think this may explain what I'm trying to say. Uh, John Bricker, they called him Honest John Bricker, and that was uh, probably the worst thing that, uh, the most inappropriate <laughs> title they could have given him. John Bricker was a senator from Ohio. Now, John Bricker was a defender of the uh, real estate lobby and the railroads and many other special interests. Uh, that was something we had pretty well documented. That's something we knew. Now, I remember that uh, during the housing debate, there was a debate over public housing. Drew Pearson thought that more public housing should be made available for the poor. And he, he always believed that a man who owns his own house is uh, going to become more, uh, is going to become a better man and less susceptible, less susceptible to foreign ideologies, less susceptible to uh, crime, uh, the the entreatments of that. Well, anyhow, he was for public housing. Well, John Bricker opposed it. And John Bricker, well, there were too many liberal Democrats. He couldn't stop it. And so he added an amendment. And under this amendment, now this was back in uh, before the Civil Rights Act, under this amendment, uh, all public housing had to be integrated. Now, at that time, there was a coalition of Southern Democrats and conservative Republicans who controlled the Senate. And they could block, and they would block, any Civil Rights Act. It's hard for us to realize that now, but there was a time when no civil rights measure could get through because the Southern Democrats had the, the conservative Republicans working with them, and they'd trade votes. The Dixiecrats. Yeah, we called them the Dixiecrats, right. So there was no way that could get through. And yet a liberal Democrat couldn't vote against it. So it was a very clever ploy. Well, the regular press carried the story like this. Uh, John Bricker, senator from Ohio, today introduced a, a civil, uh, a, uh, uh, an amendment to the public housing bill requiring all uh, uh, public housing to be integrated. Now, anybody reading that would think, well, would get a favorable impression. Here is a United States senator who believes in equal rights for all Americans and who is going to um, enforce that in, in public housing. Hooray for John Bricker. That isn't the way we wrote it. We said John Bricker, a tool of the real estate lobby, introduced a civil rights amendment to the public housing bill in order to kill it. He's not for civil rights. He's just against public housing for the poor. Now, that's the way we wrote it. You see, you wouldn't call our story objective journalism, but believe me, our story was more right. That's it. Now you're hitting story. something very interesting. I wouldn't call your story objective journalism. Neither would I call the front page story paying tribute to Bricker in the name of offering objective news. Yeah. Remember the, what came out, as you said it, and I'm sure this is so. It's, well, I see it every day. A story 
And yet, the, the choice of words by the journalist or the editor or publisher, the choice of words gives it a point of view. Bricker came off a hero on what seemed to be a story. He yet appeared. you and Pearson... We told the real using story. ...using it, even though you had a point of view, were close to the truth. He was we a tool of the We were closer to the truth. Lobby. What yeah. we said was true, and the impression that the uh, Associated Press account yeah. gave was false. Aren't you, aren't you hitting one of the key aspects in journalism today, American this very fact that someone says, hey, this guy, Jack Anderson's out to get me. He's got a point of view. He's prejudiced. See what the paper says, and the paper may be run by a certain editor or publisher who thinks as he does, and we don't have to say it, but, and there's a newspaper item, just an item that he calls news, but that by the very nature of it makes him come off a hero. So we're talking oh, about yeah. journalism, oh, aren't yeah. we? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, the establishment reporters, too, are, are uh, they become s part of the uh, of the circle. Of, they become part of the social circle of the mm. people that they write about. Yeah. They get lifted up on the mountain top. You know, they they breathe the rarefied air up there, and they begin to adopt the views and the attitudes of the people they're writing about. And uh, uh, That's so, with White House correspondents, I imagine more than ever, isn't oh, it? Oh, the White House correspondents were the they're supposed to be the cream of our profession. They're supposed to be the best in our business. Uh, not a one of them had anything to do with the biggest White House story mm. in 200 years. That was the Watergate scandal. They didn't have anything to do with that. Why? Because they're feeding at the trough. Because they're taking, uh, they're, they're adopting the views of the people they're writing about. Because they think they're walking the corridors of power themselves, don't they? Well, they, they yeah. rely on people like yeah. Jody Powell and Ron Ziegler. They rely on press spokesmen. And Believe me, they get background briefings from these fellows. Uh, Jody Powell will bring the the uh, White House correspondents together, usually individually, and he'll feed them intimate little details about what the president is doing. You read it in Time magazine, what the president ate last night and things like that. And it gives the impression that Time magazine really knows what's going on inside the White House. Well, that comes from Jody Powell. He gives them background briefings. He gives them this kind of information. But by golly, if you get that kind of information from him, and you don't, and, and you get, uh, and you don't follow the White House line, yeah. oh, you you get cut off. Well, now I operate on the assumption that Jody Powell's a liar. Why? Because, well, he's been press secretary now for two years, and in in two years he has not yet made one single unfavorable statement about Jimmy Carter. Now I don't think Jimmy Carter's that good. You see. I suspect he may not be quite that good. In that case, in that case, Jody Powell's misrepresenting the record. He's distorting the record, and he's not telling the American people the truth. But the White House correspondents continue to accept Jody Powell as a legitimate source. So now, I don't think he's now a legitimate now we come source. Why what you do is so important, and what Drew Pearson did. So now we come to something called self-censorship. There's no gov. We don't have it as a totalitarian country has it governmental, but there's something called self-censorship, isn't there? Oh, yes. The, the correspondents who, who cover Capitol Hill start thinking like congressmen. They become uh, privy to backroom deals. They become suspicious of reform. Uh, uh, they even start shaking hands and slapping backs. The correspondents who cover the State Department, first thing you know, they're wearing tweed jackets and puffing on pipes. Uh, they, they, you, you still get criticism, studs. You still do that. But you get the criticism of one agency 
yeah. toward another. The State Department correspondents will write critical stories about the Pentagon, reflecting the views mm. of the people that they associate with. And then the Pentagon reporters will write a critical story about a State Department policy that the Pentagon generals think is bad. But not the bone-deep criticisms that you get. By the way, you we're just touching on this book. There's so much in it in the memoir, The Confessions of a Muckraker. The aspect, you mentioned John Bricker a moment ago. I remember where he went part here when McCarthy, I asked about you and McCarthy. It's very interesting. When McCarthy was strong, Bricker said to him somewhere along, you're a son of a bitch, but we need you. You can do our dirty work. That's a very revealing phrase, isn't yeah. it? I think that was Robert Taft who did that. That was a Taft. I believe that it was. He was the ah, other senator from So it was clean Bob Taft. It was clean Bob Taft who said, you go ahead and do the dirty work. No, uh, that's, that's the way politics is often played in Washington. And if they're going to play it that way, somebody ought to hang it out for the public to see. I think the public's entitled to know how their government's being conducted because, you know, in this country, the, uh, the people are the sovereigns. And in any government, those who serve in the government are supposed to take an oath of allegiance, an oath of loyalty to the sovereigns. But uh, I'll tell you, the bureaucrats in Washington, they've forgotten who the sovereigns are. Since we're talking about that and about hysteria and the time of Cold War when Pearson made unfashionable, rather dangerous comments, and you were there with him, thinking about HUAC, House of Activities Committee, and Parnell Thomas, <laughs> and there. That was also another risk. He was their target, too, wasn't he? Yeah, you can look back and you can chuckle at it, as I just did, because it was almost comic opera. The chairman was this uh, bald, flush-faced J. Parnell Thomas. Uh, uh, he looked like Mussolini. Uh, you know, he, he, he looked like a caricature of a House Un-American Activities chairman, uh, as if he had been designed by Herb Block. But by golly, if you lived in that day and you were subjected to his power, you had to take him seriously. Uh, I mean, he was the one that was finding communists in the radio, television, and movie industry. He's the one that started this blacklisting, or redlisting would be a better term, this redlisting of, well, of anybody that uh, uh, had a liberal idea. It ruined careers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the most shameful episode in the entertainment business. It's, there's, there's nothing more shameful that's happened in the entertainment but, business but than the, that. But this defender of our patriotism, was doing something. Here's where Pearson and you came oh, through. We, we, now we come to the past. Well, sure, Drew, when Drew sees a, a pompous ass like J. Parnell Thomas, he, he, you know, he could, he could see through him right away. Here and he'd automatically, that nose would start here it twitching. Was again. The nose would start twitching, and he'd say, Jack, that guy's got to be a crook. Yeah. You know, he's hiding behind this communist thing. And so we investigated, and sure enough, he was. But Really, this was one that was handed to us, and let me tell you why. We were writing critical stories about J. Parnell Thomas, but uh, it was handed to us by his secretary. Now, this was an arsenic and old lace type mm -hmm. named Helen Campbell, and she was uh, she became his office wife, and and her whole life was J. Parnell Thomas's office. And so one day, J. Parnell Thomas brings in this pretty young thing, hires this beautiful new secretary, and starts paying attention to her, and starts bypassing the office wife, and starts paying more attention to the pretty young thing. Well, it got to the point where one evening after work, he invited this pretty young thing to ride home with him. He offered her a ride. 
Oh, the, the, the Helen Campbell's eyes turned green. <laughs> and arsenic and old lace hmm. got in her little old car hmm. and about two blocks behind tootled along after <laughs> him because she was suspicious. Well, sure enough, Jay Parnell Thomas stopped, parked the car at the girl's apartment and took her upstairs. And Helen Campbell, fuming, drove home and she brooded about it all night but the more she thought about it the well she she uh, she felt uh, she she couldn't bring herself quite to believe it so it occurred to her hey maybe she was looking for a, for a, for an out and she said oh he probably just took her up uh, and escorted her to the door and came back down well she thought to herself if that's the case then his car won't be there this morning. So she got up early, and she drove past the apartment house, and there was Parnell Thomas's mm. car. And so she thought, uh, she was she she thought that she would expose him because mm. she knew of some illegal activity that he had committed. But then she thought she wanted to give him one more chance. Mm. Yeah. What if he just parked there, came by this morning to pick the girl up? Mm. Maybe he didn't stay there all night. <laughs> Maybe he just dropped by and happened to pick uh, uh, a similar parking place, and maybe he's just gone up to pick her up. Ah, but she thought, if that's the case, then the radiator of his car will be warm. <laughs> so this grandmotherly old lady got out of her car, waddled over to the to Jay Parnell Thomas's car and felt the radiator. It was cold. Mm. And because the radiator was cold, Jay Parnell Thomas went to jail. Because she had the evidence. She, she came over to, to Pierce. She knew that Pearson was not a friend of Thomas. She's rather, and so she came over with the evidence. She read what we'd been writing about him. And she knew the, the place payroll. to come. He patted the payroll. He had been patting the payroll. He had been taking money, government money, that belonged to his secretaries. And that's against the law. So he wound up. She, bought, she brought the evidence to us. He was prosecuted. He went to prison. You know who was Because his radiator was cold. Do you know who was in the same prison with him? Ring Lardner Jr. I didn't know isn't that. that interesting? Isn't that interesting? He that had prosecuted him. He and had Lardner in his memoir er, uh, speaks of that. Isn't that amazing? He had helped send Ring Lardner. So there's Lardner Pearson again. Uh, patriotism, last refuge of the scoundrel. Hmm. We got to ask. Well, of course we got to ask about Joe McCarthy. Now you knew him in the younger days. In fact, you and he were friendly, and you helped him. That's a, that's a fact. That's not a fact I'm proud of, but I must say that it was before anybody knew what kind of a man he was. And you can look back and say that was a terrible thing to do to help Joe McCarthy. But when you knew him in those days, it wasn't a terrible thing to do at all because he was a rather appealing person. He had all the appeal of a tramp dog wagging its tail, you know. He, he was kind of a rumpled, uh, uh, affable, uh, modest senator. He used to delight in people mistaking his administrative aid for the senator. I didn't defend him. Uh, he delighted in it. I remember on one occasion some mother struggling with a baby at a supermarket couldn't handle both the groceries and the baby. So Joe McCarthy comes up, takes the baby, and didn't even introduce himself. She had no idea this was a United States senator. And uh, says, here, I'll hold the baby while you finish your shopping. So for 20 minutes he babysat while the, the woman finished her... Uh, Shopping Now, Joe McCarthy had that side to him, and I saw that side. But more important than that, he was a great news source. 
Ah, he, he was, was a news source. He was, he was telling you stuff because he perhaps you could help him. Of course. Yeah. He was giving me information yeah. that, in fact, he was giving me information that I couldn't get from any other senators. Uh, he would even call his fellow senators and let me listen in on the extension while he questioned them about mm. things I wanted to know. He had asked them about a secret meeting that they'd held, and they, thinking they were talking to a fellow senator, would tell him what happened. And I would find out about it, and it would appear in the Drew Pearson column. So he had been extremely helpful to me, and I hadn't found him offensive. I'd found him rather an appealing person. So when he came back from his first uh, foray across the nation, uh, blasting communists in the State Department, he came to me, and he had uh, been helping me. He said, look, I need help. Do you have any evidence? And I looked in our files, and we had some reports about some alleged communists, and I brought him the reports. Yeah. In the same way that I might have turned them over to the FBI, I thought, here is a uh, United States senator. I assumed that he would conduct a proper investigation. He didn't. In fact, within a week or two after that, I could see that he was totally irresponsible. Of course, how could I see? Drew Pearson smelled it. And <laughs> Drew Pearson told me. And uh, as Drew Pearson opened my eyes, I could see now, he, Pearson, he opened the eyes for me. Now, Pearson knew that. Here we come back to the very beginning about that nose he had. Pearson knew that in the very beginning, didn't he? He knew yeah. it. He uh, knew it uh, even before. Yeah. He knew that Joe McCarthy uh, uh, wa wa had some character flaws even before the communist thing. Yeah, and he would, he, he would warn me about him. Uh, he sensed it, and how he sensed it, I don't know, but he sensed it. I certainly didn't sense it. I had no indication of it. You know, one of the big things to ask about McCarthy, and this is about politicians and patriotism and an issue of hysteria, did he really believe it? Because you speak of the guy leaving the stand and joking of it. Did he actually, did he know it was a good issue to build him? Oh. Or did he actually believe? Well, Joe McCarthy, of course, I got to know Joe McCarthy very well after after we'd been friends. While we were friends, I didn't know him. But afterwards, Drew Pearson, after Drew had opened my eyes, I'm the one that did the investigating of Joe McCarthy. I'm the one that checked out his background, and I checked it out from beginning to end, and there isn't an important story about Joe McCarthy that I didn't dig out. And I was the first to do it, and I wrote a whole book about it. And it's a book, in retrospect, that I'm rather proud of. By the way, about that book, Now We Come to Fear and Hysteria, you wrote a book about McCarthy, you and a colleague did, before, before Fred Cook's book, and both are good. Oh, we were way ahead of Fred. Yeah, Cook. but both are good. But the point is, when you wrote that first book, you had a tough time with publishers. They were scared. We come to fear, don't we? Yes. The publishers were afraid of Joe McCarthy. He had become that, he had become that powerful. Uh, anybody who dared to stand up to Joe McCarthy was accused of being a communist. Uh, I mean, he was the witch finder general. So he in was a out way finding he witches, and anybody that he decided was a witch would become branded as a witch, you know. In a way, he was much like John Edgar Hoover in his prime. The guy they were all scared I wouldn't touch. Mm -hmm. But then you finally had publishers turned you to find you got Beacon, which is... A, a nice small, old Quaker press up yeah, in up in uh, Boston. A small little yeah. uh, publisher finally had the guts to publish the book. It was called McCarthy, the Man, the Senator, yeah. the Ism, yeah. and it laid out. I don't know whether you ever saw the uh, television show Tail Gunner yeah. Joe. Mm -hmm. Well, almost all of those yeah. episodes in Tail Gunner Joe, I I dug out and first published in. Uh, 
McCarthy. What, what interests me, though, know, is, is the fear, the aspect of fear. In that case, you had to fight that. And myths, of course. One thing, there's the myth of Eisenhower administration would come to the Sherman Adams. Perhaps now, because this deals with a very key thing of you and Drew Pearson, and in some cases, lives are ruined for the public good. Forrestow. I'm dropping the other shoe. James Forrestow. Well, James Forrestow was Mr. Establishment, as I said. Uh, he came out of Wall Street. Uh, he had the support of the aristocrats, the, the, the pundits, the plutocrats of the press. Uh, uh, he was more the darling of the establishment press than the president. James Forrestal was the uh, moon that they, or the sun that they rotated around. And uh, all his press was all good. And Drew Pearson immediately saw through it all. Drew Pearson immediately saw him as a dangerous man. Saw him as a man, as a cold warrior. Saw him as a Wall Street broker who capitalized on selling munitions. That he was a front man for the military-industrial complex. And that this mil military-industrial complex uh, was uh, promoting the Cold War in order to uh, to increase its government contracts, and uh, the more government contracts it got and the more weapons we built, the more likely we were to get into a war. At least that's the way Drew Pearson saw it. And I don't know that I ever completely saw it exactly as he did. But that's the way he saw it, and so he knew, he sensed that James Forrestal was a bad man, and he began hounding him. And then James Forrestal, well, I don't think that it was Drew's hounding that did it. I think it may have been his conscience. It may have been his, his he, he had mental problems and he, well, he, he, he became a raving lunatic. And he was still Secretary of Defense. He was a raving lunatic. But I'm thinking Pearson now took a beating from these pundits, from the Allsops and uh, whoever, yes. the whole stable Al of the Hanson distinguished Baldwin, journalists who... Arthur Crock. Crock and B Hanson Bow, who, to whom Forrestal was God, and they accused him of being responsible in a sense, and Pearson replied to him, didn't he? First in his diary, as conjured himself, as to what a reporter must do. Yes. Yeah, and that's one of the key things, because toward the end of the book, there's Eisenhower, no one touches him. Yes. And then here comes Sherman Adams and a guy named Professor Schwartz, whom you work with. Yes. A great story. Why well, suppose you tell it? And the thought when lives are ruined, but again, what the role of a journalist is. Well, it, it's it's uh, it's our job to. Uh, well, we represent the governor, not the governor. It's our job to tell the story. It's our job to expose um, dangerous people. It's our job to expose corrupt people. This is the job of the journalist. Uh, Drew uh, said it best. Why don't you read the way he put it? Well, it, it's so much in here. This is a discussion around the accumulation of these tragedies. This is you, Jack, and to which I was direct contributor. These are guys who were who worked in the Eisenhower administration, involved yeah. in corruption, Goldfine, and yeah, Thurman I, Whiteside, and Richard Mack. Yes, I hated it, but it, it had to be done. But, yeah. you say, uh, the recall the suicide of Forrest Al, the self-destruction of Joe McCarthy, the jailing ruining of J. Parnell Thomas and two other congressmen we exposed taking salary kickbacks. And then you were developed, you speak of your mood, of you wondering about Pearson, but the two edges of the sword, here's the part. 
wielded by my calling. Perhaps you should read it. It's your... Uh, I think this is a, a key to investigative journalism. Yeah, but I, I can't remember exactly yeah. how I worded Why'd it there, but I, I feel, I, I, I really do feel strongly on it, that the two edges of the sword wielded by my calling were painfully apparent to me at such times. The events of 1958 had again proved the validity, in one sense, of our kind of muckraking. Institutions will not reform themselves and the nation dependent on them for equity will disintegrate unless the wrongdoing of individual officeholders is exposed, arousing a public furor which forces compromised politicians to clean house. But every success of the investigative reporter means ruin for some human being who is typically weak rather than evil. Most of the time I am militantly convinced that the trade-off is necessary to maintain a free society there are seasons when it seems a close call. That's true. That's almost your credo, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I'm You've got to do it. I'm thinking but of... There it. are times when, well, when the people that you're exposing are just weak. They're, 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 they're not mendacious. I'm thinking yeah. right now, uh, Jack Anderson, Confessions of a Muckraker is the book by Jack Anderson and his colleague James Boyd, Random House, the publishers. And it's a story of about 40 years or so of uh, Truman Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson ears inside Washington, but perhaps a la postscript of some sort. Uh, where are we now? What shape is American journalism in today? Well, I think that uh, investigative reporting has become fashionable. Uh, investigative reporters have become folk heroes. I find this a little awkward. I'm accustomed to being the pariah of Washington, the Pax bad boy of journalism. And uh, since Watergate, I find myself being a folk hero. I mean, reporters are, are writing about reporters now, even. We're, uh, we've come become the grist for uh, titillating gossip columns. Uh, you yourself become that. Oh, you become we, the celebrity. We even, we even uh, the reporters have even been exposing reporters, as I've had the honor to discover. And uh, uh, young reporters look up to us. And there's a restaurant in New York City that uh, the chic uh, pay extra to mingle with with uh, correspondents, to, with That's with funny. reporters. I can't think of anything yeah. more obscene than that. That's you know, funny. That's people funny. people yeah. to be seen with reporters yeah. will come and pay yeah. a little extra yeah. money to go to this restaurant. Uh, but I think that uh, you know, by all the tinsel indicators. Uh, investigative reporting is still fashionable, but I think we're rolling toward the precipice. I think that uh, I think we're on the wane. Okay. You mean by what? Rolling toward the precipice. Precipice. Well, uh, publishers don't really like us. The establishment editors and correspondents—they don't like what we do. You see, they're part of the ruling crowd. Uh, they attend White House soirees. Uh, they go to Jimmy Carter's breakfasts. Uh, they get their briefings from uh, Jody Powell. Uh, they uh, begin to adopt the views of the people that uh, they're supposed to be watching. And uh, so they turn off on the investigative reporter, and I think that that's happening again now. And for a little while, we rode high because we were able to prove that a president of the United States had committed crimes in the White House. 
but uh, the, yeah. the establishment press was shaken yeah. by that. They don't yeah. like us, and I think it won't be long. We'll be we'll be pariahs again. You know, Jack Addison, pariah or hero, obviously you need it. And as uh, you would have said about Drew Pearson, stick around. I say to you, stick around. Oh, thank you. And Confessions of Muckraker is quite a book, and it's a story, you might say, of power and those who investigate it no matter what. And Random House, the publishers, thank you very much. Thank you.